Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Over the last several weeks, we've taken a look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter number 2. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there with me and uh, just take a look at that verse because I think it'll help us as we get into chapter number 3. Chapter number 3, of course, uh, speaks of uh, the last days and perilous times. And the theme of this book, or at least the way that I framed it, is powerful tools for perilous times. So now we're really getting into, really Paul is directly addressing that. But as we get into it, I think chapter number two, verse number one, will help give us a little bit of context as we run into chapter number three, because verse number uh, one of chapter two says, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And over the last several weeks, we took a look at that theme, be strong in the Lord. If we're going to be strong, it's not going to be in our strength. If the church is going to be strong, it's not going to be in our strength. It's not going to be in our financial strength. It's not going to be in our intellectual strength. It's not going to be in our physical strength. A church is strong only when they receive the strength of God that comes from the grace of God. And so we as Christians receive the grace of God, of course, first at salvation, but on a daily basis, we put our trust in God. We say, God, I'm trusting in you for my life, for my future, for what you want me to do, for your calling. And as I do so, you give me your grace. That is the strength in order to fulfill the calling. And we've went through a number of the roles. One of the roles is to be a teacher. That's one of the most important roles for us as Christians is to be teachers, if you're going to be a teacher, first of all, of course, you've got to learn. You've got to learn. You've got to receive. You've got to study the word. We've taken a look at some of those verses. But to receive it in order that we might teach it. That's such a core fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. And what we do here as a church is that our goal, or one of our major goals, is to learn in order that we might teach. Because there are people that need to be taught. There are the lost that need to be taught how to be saved. Amen? They need to learn how they can be saved because God died for the whole world. And God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There, there are people that need to be saved. There are saved people that need to grow. They need to understand what it means to be holy. They need to understand how do, I, how do I become loving? How do I be forgiving? How do I be more like Christ? And so teaching is a big part of that. We've talked about a number of roles or at least our approaches to the Christian life, being a soldier, being a servant. All of that comes through the grace of God. And all of that leads up into verse number one of chapter number three, which is the first verse that we read. This no also. That word also means, all right, in addition to chapter 2, you need to know what's going on in chapter number 3. Chapter 2 is, this is how you can fulfill all these roles, by being strong in the grace of God. You need to be strong in the grace of God because in the last days, perilous times shall come. And it sure seems like perilous times are here, that we are living in those days. So I want to see a few truths that I, I think will be a help to us when we think about those last days, when we approach perilous times. And first of all, I want us to see the hazard in the last days. The word peril means dangerous. In the last days, there will be dangerous times. This word for perilous or dangerous is used one other time in the Bible that I could find, Matthew chapter 8, verse number 28. It's the passage about when Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee and goes to the land of the Gadarenes. And in the land of the Gadarenes are two demon-possessed individuals that come out. That's what it says there in verse 28. When he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way. So when you see the word perilous times, perilous is the same word here describing these two demon-possessed individuals, and it describes them as exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way. 
So the idea here is that these two demon-possessed individuals were so aggressive, so violent, and so dangerous that nobody dared to go near them. Nobody would go on that road because they knew this is a dangerous road. Here are some dangerous individuals. They are demon-possessed, exceeding fierce. So that's kind of the picture that you might imagine when Timothy, or in the book of Second Timothy, it says in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, we live in America, though. It's pretty safe in America. It's pretty safe right now, isn't it? So how could it be that in the last days, perilous times will come when we live in America? It's really safe here. You know, if you look at history and you look at just different statistics, we know how much safer it is today than it was so many years ago and in so many other different places, right? It used to be that over half of kids would die before they hit the age of five. They would die because of complications in childbirth. They would die because of some very common diseases that, that we would get. We would be fine. We would have different treatments, antibiotics, things like that. Back then, they didn't have those things. They would die. So many kids would die very, very young. That was a very dangerous time for little kids, very dangerous times for the moms, dangerous for, for the families, very dangerous. Now, like 96, 97% of kids all make it to the age of five. You know, when you hear about a child that dies under the age of five, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And it's also very uncommon. You don't really hear about it too much these days because we've had so many medical advances. The average age or, or the average age in which somebody will pass away here in America, the average age of an individual when they pass away is into the 80s. On average, you will live, if you live here in America, into your 80s. That's average. There will be people here that live into their 90s. Anybody want to live to their 100? Anybody? <laughs> right? Somebody here might live into your 100s. In fact, there might be many people that live into your 100s. I mean, if you live into your 100s, you lived a pretty safe life. You're living pretty good. If you look at the top 10 leading causes of death in America, the items that you'll see on that list are things like heart disease. You'll see things like diabetes. You'll see things like suicide. Number one, of course, is cancer. So you see some of those lists. There's a few other things in there. But when you take a look at that list and you see the number of things that are the cause of death of people here in America, you know what's the most dangerous thing to you if you live as, a, as an American, you live, or you live here in America? The most dangerous thing is you. <laughs> you know where heart disease comes from? It comes from what we eat. <laughs> it comes from how we live, right? That's, you know where diabetes comes? Obviously, there's some genetic factor that's in there, but a lot of it comes from what we eat and how we live. You, you look at a number of these uh, uh, causes of death and you come to the conclusion, uh, the most dangerous person to me is me. <laughs> and if I'm the most dangerous person to me, I must live in a pretty safe place because I love me. <laughs> I love me. And if I'm the most dangerous person to be, we must be living pretty good. So how could it be that we live in a very safe place and yet live in perilous times? How does that square away? Well, it comes because when we speak of perilous times, of course, we are not speaking of physical danger. We're talking about spiritual danger. We're talking about spiritually perilous times because our battles are not physical, but spiritual. Ephesians chapter six, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When we talk about perilous times, we're not talking about you might get hit by a truck out there on the road. Of course, you know, we, we got to be safe when we drive out there and there's all of these things. But when we talk about perilous times, we're talking about spiritual danger. And the biggest danger to us is not physical, but spiritual. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The biggest danger is not what happens to you physically. The biggest danger is what happens to you spiritually. Because these spiritual battles have spiritual consequences. First Timothy says that thou might, uh, by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith, and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. We speak of those that leave the faith, those who know that God is God. They know that the Bible is the word of God, but they're not faithful. They're not serving. They're not obedient. They have left the word of God. They have left the church. They're living their own lives, and they're doing their own things. There are so many that have shipwrecked lives. So many that live shipwrecked lives today. But just to be honest, when we look at our church, or we look at the country that we live in, or you just look at Christians in general, churches in general, the problem with spiritual shipwreck is that those that are living spiritual shipwrecked lives don't always look like they're spiritually shipwrecked. A lot of those that are spiritually shipwrecked, if you were to look on the outside, actually look pretty good. They look pretty good. They might wear some fancy clothes. They might be pretty wealthy. They might have everything going for them in life. If you look at the Bible, you'll see a number of individuals that were shipwrecked, but on the outside, physically, humanly speaking, you may not think that they would be spiritually shipwrecked. Let's go to the time of Jesus. Let's consider the Pharisees. When you look at the Pharisees, they were spiritually shipwrecked. Jesus called them out. He said, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are the blind leading the blind. They were shipwrecked. But as a human being, if you looked at them, they looked really good. They looked like upstanding individuals. They looked religiously dedicated to the scriptures. They wore these clothes that made them look, wow, he must have his life really put together. Wow, he's really fervent in, in, in doing whatever he needs to do. And, and people respected them. They were respected in their community. But then God came along and he said, let me tell you how I see things. Everybody else thinks that you're doing great, but you guys are spiritually shipwrecked. You guys are so far from the truth. Let's go to another individual. Let's go to Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the king. He was the king of Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Remember he's the one that brought Daniel over? Remember he's the one that brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over? Remember, he, remember the king? Remember the king? Remember he was so proud of himself? Remember he was like, look at this kingdom that I built. Look how good I am. Look at how great of a leader I am. Look how successful of a kingdom I've built. And remember what God did to him? Remember he stripped him of his intellect and he made him basically like an animal for seven years until he learned that God is the God who reigns above everybody on the earth. And he said, you might look really good in front of everybody else. You look like you might be at the top of the food chain of all humanity, but you are shipwrecked. You're so full of yourself. You're so proud of yourself. I need to teach you a lesson. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Let's take a look at the life of Lot. Lot, of course, was the nephew of Abraham. Abraham took Lot with him into Canaan, went to the promised land with his nephew Lot. Remember they were together? Remember they had their flocks together? And they were doing so well that they didn't have enough physical resources for both of them together in the same place. So Abraham said, you know what, this is, this is you know, we're, we're just eating ourselves. All right, you go one way and I'll go another way because we can't, we can't stay in the same place. There's not enough grazing land for all of our flocks. You go one way, you pick a direction, whatever direction you go, I'll go in the other direction. I'll let you pick first. And so Lot lifted up his eyes onto the plain of Jordan. They were well watered. And he said, I'm going there. And he went to the plains of Jordan. Of course, the problem was there was an incredibly wicked city there by the name of Sodom. And he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He said, I'm, I'm going in that direction. 
So he pitched his tent towards Sodom, eventually made him his way closer and closer and closer until he was actually living. Now he's living in the city. He lives in the city of Sodom. He's now integrating himself into the lifestyle of Sodom. And if you were to look at Lot and his family and his life, physically, humanly speaking, he looked really good. People in his community liked him. That city and the people, they respected him. He was sitting in the, in the gates of the, uh, uh, of the city. I mean, that was a place of respect. It was a place of honor. It was a place where if you had some disputes, you might go over and, and try to get some resolution by leaders or wise individuals. And, and they, they would go over there. That's where Lot was when the angels came into town. He was respected by the people. He was successful as a businessman, as we already know. He was wealthy. He was rich. His family probably lived in a nice house. They probably drove a nice car. They had, you know, big screen TVs. Maybe not, but, you know, if they lived in today's day and age, they probably did. And, and they lived great lives. He, he had some kids. You know, the Bible doesn't make it exactly clear how many kids he had, but based on the conversation of the angels, it seems like he had sons. Obviously, he had daughters. He had sons-in-law, as we know. So his kids grew up. They got married. We don't know exactly what happened with those kids. But spiritually shipwrecked. A disaster of a life. Oh, he was wealthy, but it was a disaster. People loved him, but it was a disaster. And that's the thing about spiritually being shipwrecked, because that kind of life doesn't always look like the person who's lived a rough life. Sometimes they can come to church wearing a suit, just like me. Sometimes they come and they've got, they, it seems like they've got their life together. Like, they know where they're going in life. They know their career path. They know what they're going to do. Spiritually shipwrecked lives sometimes have great savings accounts. Sometimes spiritually shipwrecked lives have fully funded retirement accounts. Spiritually shipwrecked lives sometimes have it where, you know, the, the husband's got a great job at a nice company. The wife maybe also has a great job, maybe stays home. The kids seem pretty pretty decent, getting good grades. Sometimes spiritually shipwrecked looks just like that. Sometimes spiritually shipwrecked people even come to church every week. Sometimes spiritually shipwrecked people, when they post pictures on Instagram, they look like they've got it all together. They look like, wow, I wish I could have that life. That life looks great. They look like they know what they're doing. They look like they've got it. And they figured out this life. Luke chapter 12, verse number 16, gives us a warning, though. It, it says there, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be married. Here is a man who was so successful he could retire early. He wasn't planning on retiring early, but he just did so well that he's like, well, I mean, I can't even fit everything into my barns. I've got so much, I have to build bigger barns in order just to put everything in there. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, here was a man on the outside. Everybody would have looked at him and said, oh man, he's got it together. Man, he's doing great in life. He's making so much money. He's, he's got a fully funded retirement account. He's retiring early. He's got it together. I wish I could learn how he does it. But when God saw him, he said, you're a fool. Shipwrecked life spiritually. Physically looked great. There's a great hazard in the last days of spiritually being shipwrecked, which leads us to the harvest in the last days. If the last days are so perilous, if they're so dangerous, what is it that makes it dangerous? What should we be fearful of? What should we be on the lookout for? And there's a big list of items. We read through the list earlier. And... You know, I, I tried to group them into three different categories of 
What does it mean to be in the last days? How do we know that we are facing peril? What, what's the fruit that we'll see in the last days? The first one that I see is the magnification of self. How do we know that we're in the last days when everybody lifts up themselves? When people talk about themselves, when people show off themselves, that's how we know we're in the last days. The very first item there, lovers of their own selves. How do we know we live in the last days when people love themselves more than they love anything else? They love themselves. They are priority number one. And really, that's how we're all born, right? Children, they are born and they learn a few words. They learn mom, they learn dad, and then they learn mine. <laughs> or they learn no. Mom, no. Mom, mine. <laughs> this is mine. I want it. My ball, my spoon, my food, all of this. That's natural. That's human nature. But as we grow and mature, we begin to grow and to mature into not loving ourselves, but we should be more than just loving ourselves. We should love others. As Christians, of course, we should love the, God, uh, love the Lord. We should love God. Then we should love our, uh, others. Lovers of their own selves. Magnification of self also leads to covetousness. See, our society has become increasingly materialistic. Anybody here lacking something that they need to survive? Anybody? I'm not lacking anything that I need to survive. And yet I have an Amazon wish list. <laughs> if you want to buy me something for my birthday, here's a list of things that I would like. <laughs> if you're going to buy me something for Christmas, just look on this list. Here's a few things that I would like, I want, right? And I know that there's a balance there between wanting and needing and understanding that difference. But we live in a consumer society. That's how our country is described. Our country is not described as a producing society. Our country is known as a consuming society. We are known, how does our country keep going? Our country keeps going by spending money. That's how our economy continues to run. Most of the money that is spent is spent on purchasing you know, things. We're not really building things, we are purchasing things. And that's a problem. We know that's a problem because just look at the debt here in America. Look at the debt. There's so much debt. Why do we have so much debt in America? Maybe you don't have any debt, but as a whole in America, we have so much debt. Mortgage debt, car debt, credit card debt, student debt, all sorts of debt. And of course, maybe some of that, you know, housing, how are you going to buy a house without, you know, getting a mortgage? You know, of course, there's certain reasonable things, I think. We could talk about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But I think that if you're going to look at what we do in general, on average, as Americans, there's too much credit card debt, too much student debt. Why? Because we, we, we want more. We need more. That's the opposite attitude that we ought to have. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease, right? I'm not worthy to unloose his shoe latchet. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. That was John the Baptist's attitude, lowering himself, humility. We also see boasters, proud, high-minded. It's this idea of being lifted up within himself, not just in his mind, but also expressing it to others. I not only think I'm a big deal, I'm going to say I'm a big deal, and I'm going to live in a big deal kind of a way. Now, it's a little bit subtle. What does it mean to be a boaster? I don't really boast about myself, you know? I don't necessarily do these things, but I think there's something that will illuminate to us what it means to be a boaster, to be proud or high-minded. James chapter 4, verse number 16 says, But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. So here is James using the same word for boasting. He said, this kind of boasting is evil. This kind of boasting is evil. Well, what kind of boasting is he talking about? If you go up just a few verses, it says in verse number 13, go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, 
if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Verse 16, but now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. You know what a proud, boasting, high-minded individual does? A proud, boasting, high-minded individual plans his life without God. I'm going to go tomorrow, and I'm going to go to work, I'm going to make money, I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to go on vacation at this time, I'm going to be able to build up my wealth, I'm going to move up to a new position, get a new job, I'm going to do this with my life, I'm going to do this with my family, I'm going to do this with my friends, without making a consideration of God. That's what proud people do. That's what the Bible says. How do we know that we're in the last days? When people talk about their life without talking about God. You know, if God will be merciful to me and give me another day, then I would love to serve the Lord, and this is what I'm going to do with my life tomorrow. God, if you give me another week, what would you want for me to do? You want me to go to work and earn money and provide for myself or for my family or for others or, or to be able to, you know, be a blessing to other individuals? A proud, boasting, high-minded individual that is evident in the last days is the kind of individual that will plan his life without considering what God wants them to do or without acknowledging what God wants them to do. Another word that is described for those that magnify their self is the word incontinent. The word incontinent means a lack of self-restraint, not able to hold back. It means, almost literally, I can't wait. Incontinent means I can't wait. Let me describe to you what that means. Matthew chapter 23, verse number 25, here is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says that there won't you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. That word for excess is the same word as a word incontinent. So you can kind of get this picture of what it means to be incontinent. What, it, what does it mean to be, I can't wait? It means they live lives of excess. Lives where they can't wait. Lives where I need it and I need it now. That describes the day in which we live. I remember when I heard that Amazon was doing two-day shipping. I was like, wow, that's incredible. Anything that's ordered anywhere in the country, basically, you can get it in two days or less. And then Amazon said, that's not fast enough. Our, our customers want it earlier than that. They want it in one day. <laughs> we can't wait two days. We got to have it tomorrow. Now, I will admit, that's really convenient. You know, I was talking about the live stream. We got a new camera and we, you know, we were replacing some things. And uh, I was talking to Brian and he, you know, I said, hey, you know, I, we got this new camera. And he said, okay, I can try to set it up for, or, or whatever. And he came this past week. And, he, and he, he, he called me the day before he was gonna come and he said, hey, did you get this adapter? And I was like, oh no, that adapter was stolen. Oh man, I don't have that. And he said, okay, well, you know, I might have one, but if I don't, I'm sure I could find it at some store or whatever. And I said, okay, yeah, if you can do that, that would be great. I went on Amazon, I found the item, and it said, order it in an hour and 30 minutes and you can have it tomorrow. And I said, yes, I know I have Amazon Prime for a reason. I bought it, I ordered it, it came. And it came in time, it was great, it was very convenient. But it does kind of make us a little incontinent. We can't wait. I want what I want, and I want it now. That's the kind of culture that we live in. Another word that's used is the word heady, very similar. It means to be rash, it means to be impulsive. It carries the idea of, I can't wait, I can't restrain myself, I know I shouldn't say it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Incontinent, I can't, I can't help it. Magnification of self. Another characteristic of the last days, of the perilous times, is the minimization of others. So first of all, we see that people magnify themselves and then they minimize others. So we see that in the word blasphemers. The word blasphemer most literally means to slander. Sometimes it's used against God. Often it's used against God here. It could be used against God. In the context here, it seems to be in the context of other people. Because a lover of self will have no problem cutting down somebody else, right? 
If I'm lifting up myself, I have no problem putting down somebody else. So a blasphemer, of course, you would expect to see in the last days. The next uh, phrase is disobedient to parents. Disobedient. How do we know that we live in the last days when children are disobedient to parents? When you see this attitude and culture, not just, you know, of course we know kids, they have a flesh and they need to be taught, they need to be nurtured, they need to be raised up. But this attitude overall, I mean, I want you to think about all of the wonderful parents that are here. Wonderful parents. I mean, parents that give up their lives for their kids, right? Parents that sacrifice, parents that give up money, parents that say, this is what I would like to do, but because of my kids, I'm going to go somewhere else, right? I would love to take a vacation here, but because of my kids, I'm going to go over here. I would love to go to this restaurant, but I got kids, so I'm going to go to this restaurant. We're going to do all of these things, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give up some of my finances in order to provide for my kids and to secure their future and all of that, even at risk to myself. Wonderful parents, and yet you'll find children disobedient to even those parents. If a child could be disobedient to the person that gave up their body, gave up their money, gave up their lives, if, if they could be disobedient to that person, they could be disobedient to anybody. A person who's been giving up day after day, week after week, sleep, time, free time, things that they could buy for themselves, instead they buy for their kids, all of that, and it, it grows to be, it really feels like the attitude towards parents is parents are just tools in order for the kids to get what they want. That seems to be kind of more of a growing attitude that, that, of course, you would see in the last days, that there would be a disobedience of parents, and it would come because of unthankfulness. That's the next item there. Unthankful. Because naturally, somebody who lifts himself up thinks that whatever it is that they get, they deserve. Right? There's a difference. Thankfulness means, I don't deserve this, but I appreciate it thank you so much. That's thankfulness, all right? I appreciate what you did. A person who is proud, boasting, heady, high-minded, somebody who is a lover of self will think, whatever it is that you give me, I deserve that. I, parents, I deserve what you give me. Ingratitude is a big problem. We have much to be thankful for, so much to be thankful for. Think about all of the people who have given up their lives so that we could stand here, sit here today. Think about all of the Christians that hazarded their lives in order to protect the scriptures, in order to give the faith and give the gospel to somebody else. We have so much to be thankful for, and yet the spirit of the age of the last days will be ingratitude, without natural affection. Because there, there is a natural affection, right? Things that you would assume would be natural. You know what's natural? What's natural is a parent having love for their kids. That's natural. Natural love is for the kids to love their parents. That would be natural. That would make sense. That would be understandable. People would think that that should happen. A husband loving a wife and a, love, a, a wife loving her husband. That would be natural. But in the last days, you'll see that there, there's an unnatural, without that natural affection, that that love that should be there doesn't seem to be there anymore. I mean, I don't think that you could see any greater case than when you think about divorce. When you think about the number of families that are split apart and problems that are there, parents and children no longer talking with each other, no longer having relationships with each other, truce breakers, this idea of being unwilling to be reconciled to others, you did me wrong, and I don't care how repentant you are, I'm not forgiving you. This is an attitude that's there in the last days. False accusers. This word for false accusers is literally the Bible word for devil, right? Or diabolos, right? If you want to know, there's a difference between the names of Satan, right? Satan's got different names. The word for the devil carries with it the idea of being a false accuser. A couple other words that are used here, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors. This is, I'm lifting up myself, and I'm going to cut down others. 
So I'm magnifying self and I'm minimizing others. The last character trait, the third one, that makes the day in which we live so dangerous is the mocking of God. There are two words that are here. First is the word unholy. A lack of holiness is an indication of the last days. The other one is lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I mean, doesn't that perfectly describe the day in which we live? That people love to make themselves feel good. What matters most is that I feel good. Doesn't matter what I do or what I have to do, as long as it makes me feel good, that's what's most important. Rather than loving God. So we see all of these character traits. This is what makes the day and age in which we live so dangerous. All of these things coming out. But lastly, I want to finish on a positive note with this. The hope in the last days. Oh, we know that the last days will be dangerous, and we know they're going to be dangerous because of all of the things that we just read. But there's a phrase in verse number five that should be, if you're saved, should be very important. It should, it should make you think. Verse number five. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They look spiritual, but they lack strength. They look like they follow God, or at least they say that they follow God, but instead they are weak. I want you to notice at the end of verse 4, there's a punctuation mark that is different from all the other punctuation marks in the list, right? If you take a look at verse 2, 3, and 4, after every item, after unholiness, after unthankfulness, there's a punctuation mark that you'll see. The punctuation mark that you'll see is a, well, in the, in the, in the, in the verses, you'll see commas in between unthankfulness, unholiness, and at the end of verse number 4, as, as, uh, as you mentioned, it's a semicolon, all right? We should draw our attention, hold on a second, all right? Indicating everything up until that point is kind of grouped together. Everything after that is grouped together separately. So we've got lovers of their own selves, disobedient to parents, unthankful, blasphemers, proud, heady, high mind, all of those things. You got this big list. They all, they're, they're all together. They all make sense together. And then in verse number five, or end of verse number four, you see a semicolon which indicates, ah, okay, all right, this is something separate. Or at least it's kind of in its own category. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And when you take a look at that phrase, it seems to perfectly explain to us everything in verses two, three, and four are simply examples or traits of what is really in verse number five. So what is exemplified in the person who, as it says in verse number five, having a form of godliness but denying their power thereof, somebody looks spiritual but they have no power, they're going to be lovers of themselves. Somebody who looks spiritual but they're actually weak, they're proud. They plan their life without God. Somebody who looks like they, they say that they're a Christian, they, they, they might say, you know, describe themselves as being a Christian, but they lack the power means that they have no problem cutting down somebody else with their words. So when you see these things together in this list, now when we talk about living in the last days, we talk about, well, have you seen the world out there? It's dangerous out there. It's scary out there. Look at what's going on in politics and business and culture and all, entertainment, all of that. It's dangerous. It's scary. Stay away. But chapter 3 tells us, you know how you will really know when the last days are here? Because sin has always been in the world, hasn't it? Right? I mean, from the very beginning, Cain killed his brother Abel. I mean, isn't that without natural affection? Shouldn't you love your family? Instead, he killed his brother from the very beginning. You see these things. How do you really know when the last days are here? When those things are not just in the world, they're in the church. You know how you know it's dangerous. The times we live in are dangerous. It's dangerous when these things are not just out there, they're in here. 
See, when we come together as a church, let's not think about what's going on out there. We've got enough things to deal with in here, amen? Hey, I've got enough problems on my own without complaining about all these other people. I've got sin in my own heart. We've all got our own issues, amen? And, and that's what we need to focus on. So here's, the, here's what Paul is referring to. In, in Titus, he, he, he puts it this way, verse, chapter number one, verse number 16. They profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. They say that they're a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Isaiah chapter 29, verse number 13. Wherefore the Lord saith, uh, said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. See, New Testament, Old Testament, you see the same problem. The people of God call themselves the people of God, but perilous times come when they stop acting like it. See, when you're out to sea, the problem is not that there's lots of water everywhere all around you. The problem becomes when that water gets in your boat, right? As long as the water doesn't get in your boat, you'll be okay. You'll be fine. Doesn't matter how much water's around, doesn't matter how much water's falling down, doesn't matter how big the waves are, as long as you can keep the water out, you'll be fine. If the water gets in, you've got a problem. When you're out in the ocean, you know when it's dangerous? When the water starts getting into your boat. And you know what God is trying to warn us as Christians? In the last days, you'll know it's dangerous because the things that should be outside the boat have now gotten in. The things that should be outside the church have now gotten in the church. Now Christians are doing these things. Now Christians are living this way. Now Christians are thinking this way. Now here's the hope for us as believers. Here's our hope during perilous times. Because what happens in the church matters more than what happens outside the church. Have you ever felt looking out at the world, wow, there's a lot of problems out there. How do we fix those problems? You ever wonder that? You look at politics and you think, wow, what a mess. How are we going to fix that? You ever look at the economy and think, oh man, what, what, what are we doing here? Are, are we going to be okay? Are we just really shooting ourselves in the foot here? You might look at culture, you might look at the entertainment industry and think, what a mess. How are we going to even get in there and fix that? Here's the hope for us as Christians. You don't have to fix it. Paul didn't fix the politics of his day. Paul didn't fix the entertainment industry of his day. He surely didn't fix the economy of the countries that he lived in. You know what he did? He focused on the word of God, getting people saved, and saying, Christians, let's do what Christians do. Christians, let's follow Christ. Christians, let's do what the Bible says. So the peril is evident not just outside the church, but inside it. But the thing about it is the peril can be dealt with inside the church. Second Chronicles chapter 7, going back to the Old Testament, says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. See, the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament got themselves into trouble so many times. So many countries came in, conquered them, stole from them, destroyed them, did terrible things there. And what God is saying is, there's an answer to this. You don't have to worry about how strong the Egyptians are. You don't have to worry about what the Ethiopians are going to do. You don't have to worry about the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any of these people. You don't have to worry about any of that. All you have to do is turn from your sin, repent of it, and come back to me. The problems of Israel could be dealt with without worrying about what is everybody else doing. The problems of Israel could be dealt with simply by saying, what are we doing in our relationship with God? See, when the church becomes what God has ordained the church to be, 
then the perilous times will be dealt with. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 8 says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what, what Jesus is trying to tell his church? What he's trying to tell his church is, if you let me, if you let I, I, me do what I can do, what I want to do, if you will just come, submit yourselves to me, humble yourselves, repent of your sin, and obey, and allow me to give you strength, I will build my church, and nobody can stop me. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you look at our church, and you think, is our church going to fix the world? Not that we're going to fix the world, but you know what I'm saying? What God is saying is, you don't have to worry about the world. All you have to worry about is, what are you doing? What am I doing? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which you received of us. He's saying there's problems in the church, there's false doctrine getting in the church, there are people who are not living right. You've got to be careful, because if the water gets in the boat, you guys are going to sink. I know the temptation is to look out into the evil of the world and say, well, there's a lot of evil, let's just, let's just stay here. I know that the temptation is to look out at the world and say, if all of those people would just get their lives right, then, then we would be fine. But you know what God says? He says, if my people will just do what I called them to do, I can deal with the perilous times. I can handle it. But I've got a plan. I've got a plan through you and through me. See, when you take a look at the Old Testament, you see all of these uh, events. Think about Daniel, all by himself. But he determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Elijah decided, it doesn't matter how many prophets that Ahab brings against me. I'm following God. Consider Moses standing before Pharaoh and all of the people that he's trying to help complaining against him. Hey, you're making this worse, Moses. And Moses is saying, God, what, I, it's getting worse. <laughs> what do you want me to do? How, you said that you would deliver. And he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to do it. You just do what I say. And consider all the army of Israel shaking in their boots when Goliath stepped up and said, bring out a man. I'm going to fight with him. Saul was scared. Everybody was scared. And the little shepherd boy came up and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defied the armies of the living God? I'm going to go take him out. And everybody's like, whoa, 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 are you sure? <laughs> You're just a kid. And he said, God will deliver me. And he did. See, more than what's going on around us, we just got to focus on what we're doing. I want, I want to turn your attention to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, here is, here is Moses, and he's giving instruction really through the whole book back to the children of Israel. And he's saying, what happens when a future generation comes up and they look at the promised land where Joshua lived, where Caleb lived, and eventually where David lived, and Solomon lived, and they look at it and they think, what happened? What happened? It's destroyed. It's even described just like what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and what happens if our land looks like that? Even the nations will say, Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this land? Why did God do this? Verse 25. Then the men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom, God, uh, whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. See, what God is saying is, if the nation of Israel ever falls into a situation where you're like, what happened to that country? You will know that they did something wrong. Because if they continued to follow God, he would have protected them. Basically, what he's saying is, 
If that nation, Israel, falls away and they're scattered abroad, it will be because they have left me, God. That's what he's saying. Sports season, football season is coming up. I love sports. I love the teams that I, you know, I, I, I root for. I'm from the Seattle area. Love those, love those teams. Sometimes we have good teams. Not often, but sometimes we've got some good teams. But you know what's the most frustrating thing? It's not frustrating to me necessarily that my team is just bad. You know, it's bad. It's not good, but, you know, I can deal with that. You know what's one of the most frustrating things for me? When you've got a really good team playing against the bad team, and your good team loses to the bad team because they just played badly. They could have easily just demolished them and just wiped them out and ran up the score and just made life easy for themselves. It's so frustrating when they play and they're just shooting themselves in the foot. Silly fouls, not paying attention, not focused, not doing their job. Because they didn't do their job, the other team got a touchdown. Because they didn't do their job, they're giving up all these points. Not doing their job, so they could have scored points, but instead they didn't. That's so frustrating. You know, when you look out at the world, you might think, wow, they're so powerful. And the devil is powerful. The flesh is powerful. But God is more powerful. You know what God is saying is, let's not shoot ourselves in the foot. Hey, we've got God on our side. But if we want God to work for us in these perilous times, you know what we've got to do? We've got to take a look at this list and say, all right, do we got any of this in here? Do we, do we have any unthankfulness in here? Do we have any disobedient to parents in here? Do we have some unholiness in here? proud living that we're making our life plans without thinking about what god wants for us to do this is what i want to do and i'm laying out my day sunday monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday without acknowledging this is what god wants me to do hey that's when you know perilous times are coming that's when you know perilous times are here but the opposite side of that is also this if perilous times are here we just got to worry about us and we don't got to worry about them we can deal with them later but let's deal with us so if perilous times are here, we have an answer. And the answer is simply this. Go to God, repent of your sins, and ask for forgiveness. It's that simple. That's what we got to do. We don't got to come up with a big fundraiser to raise up billions of dollars. We don't got to come up with a solution on how we can get all of our prime candidates into Congress and, you know, uh, presidency and Supreme Court and all of that. You know, it's good to have good rulers that follow the principles of the Bible. Of course, that's good. But perilous times are not dealt with there. Perilous times are dealt with here within the church. So let's deal with them in the church.